Who is that? asked Lena from real estate, who was just passing with a coffee. J. Random Crank. Probably not worth worrying about. He seemed harmless. You've got to watch them, she said worriedly. Sometimes they come back. Why didn't you call security? I wish I knew. Steve rubbed his forehead. The shrill buzz of his phone dragged him back inside the cubicle. He picked up the receiver, checking the caller ID. It was Tony and editorial. Steve speaking, can I? Turn on your TV, Tony interrupted. Something in his tone made Steve's scalp crawl. What channel, he demanded. Any of them, Tony hung up. All around the office, the phones were going mad. No, it can't be, Steve thought, dry swallowing. He moused over to the TV tuner icon on his desktop and double-clicked to open it, and saw two lopsided mushroom clouds roiling against the clear blue sky before a camera view flecked with static, both leaning towards the north in the grip of a light breeze. Vehicles are being turned back at police checkpoints. Meanwhile, National Guard units a roiling storm of dust and gravel, like the aftermath of the collapse of the Twin Towers. Vice President at an undisclosed location will address the nation. A brown-haired woman on CNN, her normal smile replaced by a rictus of shock, asking someone on the ground questions they couldn't answer. People walking from their offices, dirty and shocked, some of them carrying their shoes, briefcases, helping their neighbors. Reports that the White House was affected by the attack cannot be confirmed yet, but surviving eyewitnesses say. A flashback view from a surveillance camera somewhere looking out across the Potomac. Flash, and it's gone. Blink, and you've missed it. Residents warned to stay indoors, keep doors and windows closed, and to drink only bottled. Minutes later, Steve stared into the toilet bowl, waiting for his stomach to finish twisting as he ejected the morning's coffee grounds and bile. I had him in my office, he thought. Oh, Jesus. It wasn't the thought that he'd turned down the scoop of a lifetime that hurt him like a knife in the guts. What if I'd listened to him? Probably it had been too late already. Probably nothing could have been done. But the possibility that he'd had the key to averting this situation sitting in his cubicle, trying to explain everything with that slightly flaky twitch. The man who knew too much. That was too much to bear. Assuming, of course, that Fleming was telling the truth when he said he wasn't the guy behind the bombs. That needed checking out for sure. When he finally had the dry heaves under control, he straightened up, and still somewhat shaky, walked over to the wash basins to clean himself up. The face that stared at him, bleary-eyed above the taps, looked years older than the face he'd shaved in the bathroom mirror at home that morning. What have we done? he wondered. The details were in the dictaphone. He'd zoned out during parts of Fleming's spiel particularly when it had been getting positively otherworldly. He remembered bits. Something about medieval anti-personnel mines. Crazy stuff about prisoners with bombs strapped to their necks.
but the big picture evaded him, like a slippery mass of jelly that refused to be nailed down like an untangled ball of string. Steve took a deep breath. I've got to get Fleming to call in, he realized. A faint journalistic reflex raised its head. It's the story of a lifetime. Or the citizen's arrest of a lifetime. Is a nuclear unibomber even possible? J. Barrett Armstrong's office on the 10th floor was larger than Steve Schroeder's beige cubicle on the 8th. It had a corner of the building to itself, with a view of Faneuil Hall off to one side and a mahogany conference table the size of a Marine Corps helicopter carrier tucked away near the inner wall of the suite. It was the very image of a modern news magnate's poop deck, shipshape and shining with the gleaming...